This is the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler. Wildlife is a key component of the Horizon 2 initiative. And today's guest is actually an employee of the National Wildlife Federation. Now, I know this guy as a duck hunter and as a member of the Legends of Outdoors Hall of Fame. (laughs) He's got a fancy title. I don't think I can even repeat it all. So I'm going to let him introduce himself. (laughs) Hey, man, I appreciate being on, Brandon. And, you know, I'm Bill Cooksey. I'm with the National Wildlife Federation, and I'll have to take a breath, but I am the Senior Sportsman Outreach Coordinator for the Vanishing Paradise Program, and I'm Director of Conservation Partnerships for Tennessee. Wow. There you go. Fit all that onto a business card. (laughs) It's hard. Now, Bill, you've been a waterfowl hunter most of your life. I'm 56, and now it's 52 years I've been going to the blind. Yeah, you should have been getting out there a little sooner. I know. What took you so long? Well, my my dad was lagging. Yeah. (laughs) Part of the world you're from is pretty special to me. You're from West Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Tell people exactly where. I'm from Jackson, Tennessee. That, that's my hometown. And these days I live near Parsons on Kentucky Lake, which is still only 30 minutes from Jackson. And my grandfather was born and raised not too far from Jackson. Right. So Real Foot Lake was instrumental in, in my childhood and my love of the outdoors. And I know it matters a lot to you as well. Uh, Real Foot, you know, it's iconic. If, you, if you're a waterfowl hunter or, or even a fisherman from our part of the world, I mean, it's the best brim fishing in the world, Real Foot Lake. But with Prairie Profits, what we're talking about is Missouri and Iowa for the most part. And we're talking about prairie grass and cover crops. And some people might think, well, how does prairie associate with waterfowl what are you doing with this waterfowl hunting guy on here (laughs) for somebody that might not understand the correlation explain it well i mean prairie is habitat and and prairie is not just one thing it's not just you know and you correct me because it's what you do but it's not just a desolate grassland out there prairie habitat is diverse and incredibly important to all wildlife including waterfowl Absolutely. And and the prairie potholes are where the ducks deliver the new ducks. Right. So they may breed all over the continent, but they fly back to the prairie pothole region. Well, and that's where the, the numbers come from. If we're going to have boom years, it comes from the prairie potholes. There are other places that kind of sustain some numbers and all, and it's important. But we can go back to 94, you know, when the water came back and we had CRP and everything going on. We had been through that duck drought and three and 30 and all of that. And suddenly the rains came back and CRP was on the ground and the ducks exploded because the prairie pothole region was right. Now, CRP, Conservation Reserve Program, that's not something we talk about probably enough on this podcast. CRP, I mean, it's really, that's the government program mm-hmm. that's putting a lot of native grasses back on the landscape. Right. So what we're trying to do with the Horizon 2 initiative is very similar, except it's a private entity. It's not the government. I mean, this grant is funded by the USDA through the Climate Smart Commodities Initiative. But ultimately, we're trying to you know, work with farmers and landowners directly to make prairie and cover crops, mm-hmm. you know, herbaceous biomass, into a commodity. So it'd be just herbaceous biomass. Herbaceous that, biomass. That's hard for me, man. <laughs> yeah, I, you should name your next dog that. Herbaceous. Herb. 
Fetch, herbaceous. <laughs> uh, so herbaceous biomass that we can harvest, mm-hmm. add to our manure mixture, and create renewable energy from it. So instead of taking land out of production and putting it into CRP and then just getting a, you know, a rental rate essentially mm-hmm. from the right. government, you're back into private entities bartering and selling and buying and making it into an actual business interaction. And we like that. We Absolutely. Like that. I, I, look, it, it, I'm for all of the above. You know, I, CRP is a wonderful program, but it ain't the be all end all and it can't do it all. So a private entity program, I love this idea, this concept. I do too. And as you said, CRP is great. CRP really is great. But some landowners, some farmers, they don't want anybody telling them what to do on their land. Right. They don't want rules or regulations on how they're going to manage that grasslands. And and with our initiative, you know, if you get halfway through it and you decide you don't want to do it anymore, you put it back in corn if you want to. You mean you don't have to put it in in perpetuity? No. No. This is a... This is a, a transaction, okay, if you will, and you can control your own land. You can control your own harvest, your own crop. It has to make sense for what we're trying to do with the energy production, right? But at the same time, you know, you're still in charge of what goes on on your own place. As a guy who grew up on a farm, and most of my close friends are still farmers. I mean, and I love the concept. I love everything about that, and I love. The fact that wildlife will benefit so much from it. So how did a guy who started duck hunting at four years old come to care so much about conservation and habitat? Why aren't you just a hunter? Well, you know, most of us aren't just hunters or or I shouldn't say most, but most I know aren't just hunters. But but my father, my earliest memory or one of my earliest memories was at what was called a Ducks Unlimited rally. That was before banquets. And my dad was involved. I was three or four. I mean, I was about the time I started going to the blind with him, we were in a civic center in Jackson, Tennessee, and they were having a Ducks Unlimited rally. Everyone sitting out in the crowd. And I can still, as a little kid, I remember these men are up there on the stage and a man's blowing a duck call and suddenly this duck flies up and he throws up a gun and he shoots and the duck falls. Now, to me, that man just called and shot a duck on state. You know, it was the coolest stuff I've ever seen in my freaking life. And turns out it's just a shackled duck. Later, my father, when I was 20, he said, no, son, it was a shackled duck. It was all a set, but to me, it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> so him being so involved with DU and he ended up, he was a trustee emeritus. He helped, helped set up their art program years ago. Probably the reason, you know, wildlife art maybe isn't worth what it used to be. (laughs) Every time you go (laughs) to a garage sale or an auction. That was his life, was wildlife art. That was his whole way of making a living. So I grew up with it, and I really never had a shot at anything else, I guess. You know, that's the way I thought. Well, I think that's pretty neat to to be raised by a hunter-conservationist who expressly understood and appreciated Mm -hmm. and shared the artistic value of nature. Yeah. That's pretty special. Absolutely. I mean, man, I cherish every moment of my life, you know, in, in the outdoors. I shot my first duck in Gene Hill's backyard, uh, you know, and, and I know a lot of listeners won't know who Gene Hill was, but I'll encourage you to Google it and maybe read a couple of his stories because one of the greatest sporting writers we ever had. 
Yeah. Now, you also grew up, you know, an advocate for Nash Buckingham. Oh, yeah. And Nash Buckingham had a lot to do with the founding of the Conservation Federation Mm -hmm. of Missouri. He was hired to do PR. He didn't drive himself, so they had to hire a driver for him and had Nash Buckingham around the state encouraging people to get behind this initiative to support conservation. Right. So the hunters have always really been there for conservation. Hunters really kind of invented it. I mean, you know, there were others, obviously, and I don't want to detract from them, but we wouldn't have Ducks Unlimited, National Wildlife Federation, Delta, Pittman-Robertson, Dingle. None of that exists without sportsmen. So the National Wildlife Federation, you work for them with that incredible title that you rattled (laughs) off for us. I was involved when I was at the Conservation Federation. I was a Mm co-chair of the Sportsman's Caucus. What I like about that organization is its diversity. Yes. I mean, you've got cat ladies in New Jersey and elk hunters in New Mexico coming together all to support conservation Mm -hmm. and wildlife. Now, you're a sportsman. A lot of people that work there are not sportsmen. How does that work together? Like, how does does the sportsman crowd and the non-sporting crowd focus together on the big picture? Yeah, and it's... It's actually kind of amazing because you know me, I'm, I'm an old redneck duck hunter. I mean, when you get down to it, legend of conservation, <laughs> but I sit here in meetings with ladies who have never cared about anything but monarch butterflies. And we find this synergy and move forward together. And you bring all these different constituencies together and good things happen. Yes. They have educated me about things I've never even thought about, but vice versa is true as well. And now you've come to love some of those things. Absolutely. And those people have come to love some of your loves Mm -hmm. as well. I got to tell you something real quick. Young lady here tonight, I ran into her. She's not with NWF. She's with TNC now. But I met her in New Orleans. She worked with our organization down there on MRD stuff, Mississippi River Delta issues, coming right out of school. Never shot a gun, never hunted or anything. Today, she's at NASC. And just ended up here, you know, they're like, hey, you ought to go do this. And she said, well, Bill always said this hunting thing was pretty cool and a bunch of conservation. She shot a gun today for the first time. And she's like, I want to go hunting. Very cool. Now, we got to be careful with the acronyms on this podcast. I understand. The soup can get deep. Yes. Explain what NASC is. National Association of Sporting Caucuses. And this is, you know, it's the state legislators from all around the country get together here to talk about various issues of concern to sportsmen and now we've got uh representative tim taylor from Mm -hmm. missouri he's my personal state representative in attendance and uh bruce sassman both of whom have been guests on this podcast bruce is the chairman of the conservation committee in the house representatives in missouri I haven't seen anybody from Iowa. We'll have to work on them. I'm on the board now of the Iowa Wildlife Federation. Good. So uh, that's my tie to the National Wildlife Federation awesome. at this point. So I, I guess I still am in the family. We need you, brother. And uh, Steve Bender yes, is sir. the representative from NWF up there. So it's always good to mm-hmm. stay connected with Steve. And yeah, I'm wondering now, like, where are the Iowa people at? We're going to have to... I have to get them here. We we got to the get them here to the. Uh, I guess we'll be in in uh, Baton Rouge next year in Louisiana. Oh, so. what a great place to be! And duck season will be open. So yeah, that was really rough to come out here. I was super excited to come out here and and hunt the Chesapeake Bay yeah. and, 
and he'd get out here and, and ducks. Well, I knew before I got here, but duck season was not open. So I thought I'll still get a little hunting in and I'll just maybe go out and shoot some squirrels. If I had even thought of it, we should have talked earlier. I, I would have been ready. I, I would have loved to have gone, even though it was a little bit of a dry run. Yeah, it was a big dry run. <laughs> I, put the, I put the boot leather down, uh, hunted real hard this morning, hiked 11 miles looking for a squirrel and did not see a squirrel until... Just to rub salt in the wound, I see a hawk come swooping out of a tree and flare up right before it hits the dirt. And I thought, it better be a snake or it better be a mouse. And this is after probably hiking 10 miles over two or three hours. Right. And I get over there and sure enough, it was a squirrel. So I... I shooed the hawk off. I stole his squirrel. Wait, you I, said shooed, right? Yeah. Okay. Shoo, shoo. Get away from me, hawk. Uh, I wanted to make sure what you I ended that. I did not shoot the hawk. Okay. I shooed the what hawk. What was the consonant at the end again? That's true. You do. Sp- <laughs> you speak southern. so <laughs> we, we we talk even down, slower you, than we think. You shoo them down there and That's right. where you're from. <laughs> uh, I gave the hawk his squirrel back, but I had to admire it for a minute. Just, yeah, very humbling. If, if life's not humbling enough, watching a hawk kill the one squirrel in Delaware when I was trying my hardest. <laughs> the last squirrel. The last in squirrel in Delaware. <laughs> you, you're like one of these guys in the late 1800s who are like, well, I know buffalo are going to be gone soon, so I better go kill yeah, one. One squirrel left. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to kill that last squirrel. <laughs> yeah, I do have to say, too, the squirrel hunting in Delaware sure is different. There's these signs all over the forest where they've tried to reintroduce a silver fox squirrel. And clearly people listening can't see the photo, but they've got these, these signs with two gray squirrels on it. And this squirrel is, this is the Eastern gray squirrel and it's okay to shoot. And this one is a silver color phase of a fox squirrel and it's not okay to shoot. And if you were holding both of them in your hands, and staring at them from a foot away, I assume you might be able to tell the difference because they said that fox squirrel's ears are shorter and its tail's longer. But if it's 75 feet up in an oak tree, right. and I'm like, hmm, how tall are the ears on that squirrel <laughs> before I pull the trigger? I was like, man, I don't know about this squirrel regulation. Like, where, where we hail from. If it's a squirrel, you if it's just, a squirrel, it's a squirrel, and you can squirrel, get it. Yeah. That's right. It goes so. in dumplings, and we're good. Oh man, the East Coast. Welcome to it. <laughs> Welcome to it. Yeah, I would love to see them try to explain that to some of the Ozark squirrel hunters. Oh my gosh! And my part of the country, no. It's if it's a fox squirrel, it's near water and it's big. If it's a gray squirrel, it's up high in the trees. You know, one thing that. NWF, the National Wildlife Federation, does for grasslands, for prairies. You actually host the Grasslands Conference Mm -hmm. every two years, and you just had it in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I was in Africa this year at that time. I wasn't able to make it, but we had people in I'm not going to feel sorry for you. I'm not asking you to. (laughs) I'm not asking you to at all. It was a heck of a trip, man. And uh, I did speak at it when it was in Bismarck a few years before, but... You know, prairie, and again, back to what you were saying about the butterflies, you know, prairie has become such a passion Mm -hmm. for me, and I never saw that coming. You know, I thought deer and turkeys and ducks and and, and the places that I'm typically chasing them, like in the marsh. I like wetland. Mm -hmm. I've 
early on, I, I came to appreciate wetlands and hardwoods. And when the acorns are falling and the oak trees are, you know, losing their leaves in the fall, like that's where I want to be up, See, up in that you're, tree. You're southern enough, you say acorns. Yeah. And I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but prairie, man, it's really grabbed onto my heart. And I'm actually going to surround my new house. I've got 40 acres and I'm going to restore 15 acres to prairie this winter. We're going to seed it down in, in either late January or early February. So Wait, learn- well, most people don't realize what where prairie was historically. I mean, we, we think of the Dakotas and Montana and Arkansas. Oh, yeah was full of prairie chickens and prairie. I mean, they would take trains out of Memphis. People would come from all over the country and take trains to go out across the prairie and hunt prairie chickens. Tall grass prairie, right here, Midwest, tall mm-hmm. grass prairie. That is the most decimated yes. natural landscape in North America. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I believe it's less than 1% still remains. Hey, the Kentucky Barrens were prairie. Well, if you look at a cornfield in Iowa or Missouri or Illinois or Indiana, wherever you may be, you're looking at land that was very likely prairie. We're we're learning the old idea of, they they used to say when Columbus landed, a squirrel could get in a tree on the East Coast and go all the way to the Mississippi River. That's not true. There were grasslands. That's not true because there ain't any squirrels in the East Coast. Exactly. They couldn't have started here because they don't exist. (laughs) That's right. uh, uh, But... There were grasslands all throughout. Now, whether or not you want to call it classic prairie, but it was a prairie-type landscape in many parts of the east. Yeah. I mean, across the country, you have different types of prairie. Mm-hmm. What we mostly focus on is the tall grass sure. prairie. But native grasses are very crucial yeah. habitat for wildlife. And we've learned the hard way that, we have to have these grasses if we're going to have certain species. And mm-hmm. right at the top of that list are two that you talked about, the prairie chicken, which is already mm-hmm. endangered, and the monarch butterfly, which is close. In trouble. And likely going to be added to the list soon. Yeah. Despite all kinds of efforts to the contrary. I mean, it, the habitat loss, you, you can't overcome it with little short you know, programs and stopgap measures. It, it takes serious work. You know... We're, we are making progress, though. We mm-hmm. talk to farmers today, and they see the value in a milkweed. You know, yeah. the same milkweeds that their grandparents spent their whole lives trying to destroy. <laughs> now yeah. their grandchildren are trying to restore them to their lands. It, it, it's almost like in, in my part of the country, more and more farmers saying, you know what, these, these levees hadn't really done us a lot of favors. You know, you, you're starting to starting to see we maybe have engineered ourselves out of a better situation. Or blowing the dams mm-hmm. in, in the Pacific Northwest or right. up in New England. Right. We're learning. It took it took a lot it's of tough, it brother. Took a lot of messing up. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And we'll mess up more. You know, we'll mess up more. We're human. But more and more people seem to be trying to do it right and trying to figure out how to do it right. And our elected officials are getting behind it. Yeah. That's why we're on this podcast today. Amen. I mean, if it wasn't for this Climate Smart Initiative, and, you know, that there's still so many people that are, you know, they don't want to talk about climate change. They don't want to accept that. 
But you got to accept the fact that there's... Most people can't talk about it without getting into other subjects. Right. Let's just talk about what we're seeing. If you're a duck hunter in my flyway and you can't talk about the fact everything's changed weather-wise or patterns, you aren't being honest with yourself. You're not hunting enough. Right. (laughs) Yeah. No, it absolutely has changed and the habitat has changed Mm -hmm. and the weather patterns have changed and now we're looking for solutions. Right. And, And... it's those that are that are stepping up, you know, the Rudy race lines of the world. You know, Rudy, you know, he, he had such an incredible business before he started Raceline Alternative Energy. He could have could have easily just kind of drifted off into his golden years and, and enjoyed what he had acquired. But he went all in on this initiative. And it's remarkable that we've been able to be awarded this opportunity. That's awesome. And with 40,000 acres of prairie to restore and 40,000 acres of cover crops to establish over the next five years, that's a lot of grass. That's meaningful. And that's going to make a big impact on those, those localized communities. And when Mm -hmm. I say community, I'm not talking about just human beings, right? Community of all the critters that live there and pass through there from the monarch butterfly to the quail, which we've seen, drastic declines in Brandon, populations. I grew up, quail was the main thing I hunted as a kid because I could walk out the door, open a kennel after school, and go bird hunt. My son's 23. He's never shot a wild bobwhite quail. I mean, how does that make that, you feel? In my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. How does that make happened. you feel about turkeys and the decline right now? Because I keep coming back to quail when people are like, well... They're, the numbers are declining, but they'll never go away. And I say, tell that to a quail hunter in yeah. central Missouri. And, 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 and I'm one of those who, as a kid, we did not have turkeys where I live. All right. And in, in my part of West Tennessee, the Ames Plantation had some turkeys. And then Middle Tennessee had a few counties with a huntable population. I never saw a quail or never saw a turkey until I was in that part of the country, until I was in my mid-20s. We didn't have them. So now we have turkey, you know, we, we went through a boom through the early 2000s, and now to have seen them having trouble, it scares the, yeah. can I say it scares the hell out of me? You can. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know if the FCC. Uh, if they cancel us over that, then at least we went down fighting. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's scary. Uh, and, and to see a quail every now and then is awesome, and it, Mike Butler and I, he just bought a new bird dog, and we're talking about naming the dog. And I'm saying, you're, uh, you are just a positive thinking man to buy a bird dog in my part of the world. Yeah, he you know? should have got a gas card to go with it. <laughs> yeah. He's going to get out to Kansas. Amen. Well, man, we're running out of time. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. Uh, we could talk for hours about about hunting and, and the sporting traditions and the history of it all. I know you and I share a passion for how we got here. You know, the people that laid the path for us. Let's we'll do have, that. We'll sometime. have to save that for a, another yeah. day, but I just want to wrap up by saying you're very, very humble about this, this honor. And I've joked a few times, but you really are in the, the legends of the outdoors mm-hmm. hall of fame. And, and again, you're, you're very humble about it. And I appreciate that. But what, what do you think it is that you've done that, that you'll be remembered for? Man, I, I, I hope I have helped a lot of young people see a better way forward in the sporting world, you know, whether, whether it's career-wise or conservation-wise. That's the most important thing. To me. I, if, if 50 years from now somebody tells their kid, 
Bill Cooksey, you know, taught me to shoot trap when I was in school or whatever. And my life changed directions because of that. That would mean everything. So maybe that would be what I hope I'm remembered for. I hope you are too. It ain't a duck calling contest. (laughs) That was for me. That's right. All right, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks for listening to the Prairie Prophets podcast with host Brandon Butler. 